and the long-nosed man withdrew again. Oleron waited for another five minutes on the step. Then the man, appearing again and masticating some of the food of which he had spoken, announced that the key was lost. But you won't want it, he said. The entrance door isn't closed, and a push will open any of the others. I'm an agent for it if you're thinking of taking it. Oleron recrossed the square, descended the two steps at the broken gate, passed along the alley, and turned in at the old wide doorway. To the right, immediately within the door, steps descended to the roomy cellars, and the staircase before him had a carved rail and was broad and handsome and filthy. Oleron ascended it, avoiding contact with the rail and wall, and stopped at the first landing. A door facing him had been boarded up, but he pushed at that on his right hand, and an insecure bolt or staple yielded. He entered the empty first floor. He spent a quarter of an hour in the place, and then came out again. Without mounting higher, he descended and recrossed the square to the house of the man who had lost the key. Can you tell me how much the rent is? he asked. The man mentioned a figure, the comparative lowness of which seemed accounted for by the character of the neighborhood and the abominable state of unrepair of the place. Would it be possible to rent a single floor? The long-nosed man did not know. They might. Who are they? The man gave Oleron the name of a firm of lawyers in Lincoln's Inn. You might mention my name, Barrett he added. Pressure of work prevented Oleron from going down to Lincoln's Inn that afternoon, but he went on the morrow, and was instantly offered the whole house as a purchase for fifty pounds down, the remainder of the purchase money to remain on mortgage. It took him half an hour to disabuse the lawyer's mind of the idea that he wished anything more of the place than to rent a single floor of it. This made certain hums and haws of a difference, and the lawyer was by no means certain that it lay within his power to do as Oleron suggested. But it was finally extracted from him that provided the notice boards were allowed to remain up, and that provided it was agreed that in the event of the whole house letting, the arrangement should terminate automatically without further notice, something might be done. That the old place should suddenly let over his head seemed to Oleron the slightest of risks to take, and he promised a decision within a week. On the morrow he visited the house again, went through it from top to bottom, and then went home to his lodgings to take a bath. He was immediately taken with that portion of the house he had already determined should be his own, scraped clean and repainted, and with that old furniture of Oleron's grandmother's, it ought to be entirely charming. He went to the storage warehouse to refresh his memory of his half-forgotten belongings and to take the measurements, and thence he went to a decorator's. He was very busy with his regular work and could have wished that the notice board had caught his attention either a few months earlier or else later in the year, but the quickest way would be to suspend work entirely until after his removal. A fortnight later, his first floor was painted throughout in a tender elder flower white. The paint was dry, and Oleron was in the middle of his installation. He was animated, delighted, and he rubbed his hands as he polished and made disposals of his grandmother's effects. The tall, lattice-paned china cupboard with its darby and mason and spode, the large folding Sheraton table, 
the long, low bookshelves, he had had two of them copied, the chairs, the Sheffield candlesticks, the riveted rose bowls. These things he set against his newly painted elder white walls, walls of wood paneled in the happiest proportions and molded and coffered to the low-seated window recesses in a mood of gaiety and rest that the builders of rooms no longer know. The ceilings were lofty and faintly painted with an old pattern of stars. Even the tapering moldings of his iron fireplace were as delicately designed as jewelry. And Oleron walked about rubbing his hands, frequently stopping for the mere pleasure of the glimpses from white room to white room. Charming, charming, he said to himself. I wonder what Elsie Ben Guff will think of this. He bought a bolt and a Yale lock for his door and shut off his quarters from the rest of the house. If he now wanted to read in bed, his book could be had for stepping into the next room. All the time he thought how exceedingly lucky he was to get the place. He put up a hat rack in the little square hall and hung up his hats and caps and coats and passers through the small triangular square late at night looking up over the little serried row of wooden toilette hatchets could see the light within Oleron's red blinds, or else the sudden darkening of one blind and the illumination of another, as Oleron, candlestick in hand, passed from room to room, making final settlings of his furniture, or preparing to resume the work that his removal had interrupted. As far as the chief business of his life, his writing, was concerned, Paul Oleron treated the world a good deal better than he was treated by it, but he seldom took the trouble to strike a balance, or to compute how far, at forty-four years of age, he was behind his points on the handicap. To have done so wouldn't have altered matters, and it might have depressed Oleron. He had chosen his path and was committed to it beyond the possibility of withdrawal. Perhaps he had chosen it in the days when he had been easily swayed by something a little disinterested, a little generous, a little noble, and had he ever thought of questioning himself, he would still have held to it that a life without nobility and generosity and disinterestedness was no life for him. Only quite recently, and rarely, had he even vaguely suspected that there was more in it than this. But it was no good anticipating the day when he supposed he would reach that maximum point of his powers beyond which he must inevitably decline, and be left face to face with the question whether it would not have profited him better to have ruled his life by less exigent ideals. In the meantime, his removal into the old house with the insurance marks built into its brick merely interrupted Romilly Bishop at the fifteenth chapter. As this tall man with the lean, ascetic face moved about his new abode, arranging, changing, altering, hardly yet into his working stride again, he gave the impression of almost spinster-like precision and nicety. For twenty years past, in a score of lodgings, garrets, flats, and rooms, furnished and unfurnished, he had been accustomed to do many things for himself, and he had discovered that it saves time and temper to be methodical. He had arranged with the wife of the long-nosed Barrett, a stout Welsh woman with a falsetto voice, 
the Marionettshire accent of which long residence in London had not perceptibly modified, to come across the square each morning to prepare his breakfast, and also to turn the place out on Saturday mornings. And for the rest, he even welcomed a little housework as a relaxation from the strain of writing. His kitchen, together with the adjoining strip of an apartment into which a modern bath had been fitted, overlooked the alley at the side of the house, and at one end of it was a large closet with a door and a square sliding hatch in the upper part of the door. This had been a powder closet, and through the hatch the elaborately dressed head had been thrust to receive the click and puff of the powder pistol. Oleron puzzled a little over this closet. Then, as its use occurred to him, he smiled faintly, a little moved, he knew not by what. He would have to put it to a very different purpose from its original one. It would probably have to serve as his larder. It was in this closet that he made a discovery. The back of it was shelved, and rummaging on an upper shelf that ran deeply into the wall, Oleron found a couple of mushroom-shaped old wooden wig stands. He did not know how they had come to be there. Doubtless the painters had turned them up somewhere or other and had put them there. But his five rooms as a whole were short of cupboard and closet room, and it was only by the exercise of some ingenuity that he was able to find places for the bestowal of his household linen, his boxes, and his seldom-used but not-to-be-destroyed accumulation of papers. It was in early spring that Oleron entered on his tenancy, and he was anxious to have Romilly ready for publication in the coming autumn. 